This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is David Suchar. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its third season. In our first two seasons, my good friend Buzz Tarlow produced 25 episodes on a variety of timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, I expect to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we'll be talking about the mediation of construction cases, and more specifically, the mediation of larger multi-party construction cases using a blind or a double-blind method. So these are mediation processes typically used in larger multi-party construction cases and processes where the plaintiff conveys a demand, and then certain bidding information is hidden from the parties involved as they move closer toward resolution. We'll also talk about double-blind settlement proposals and considerations for both processes. So we have today with us a great guest to discuss these issues. Mark Healy is an accomplished attorney, arbitrator, and mediator with the Healy, Duncan, and Melander firm here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He is a fellow of the American College of Construction Lawyers, and he has been very active in the ABA Forum on Construction Law as well, having chaired Division Three, the Design Division, served on the governing committee for three years, and also on the publications chair. He and I spent some years together working on claims at U.S. Bank Stadium here in Minneapolis. Mark is a very well-known, accomplished lawyer and neutral. He is also a great guy. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, David. If uh, we were on TV, you'd see me blushing after the introduction. Thank you. Cool. Happy to be here and look forward to talking with you. Well, you deserve it. I'm excited to podcast with you today. Before we get started, Mark, into the substance of blind mediations, can you give us a quick summary of your law practice and experience? Sure. Uh, Well, since this is an ABA Construction Forum podcast, it won't shock you to hear that uh, I'm a construction lawyer at heart, or won't shock our listeners. And my dad led to that. He was a civil engineer. I worked for him in the summers. I quickly realized engineering wasn't for me and studied political science and broadcasting. When I graduated, broadcasting was a very tight market. And my wife had a great job here in Minneapolis, so I followed her here to law school. I went through three years as a clerkship for a judge. And then when I interviewed uh, for jobs, they all asked that inevitable question. What kind of law do you want to practice? And I think I may have told you before, I, I had no idea what kind of law I wanted to practice. But since my dad was an engineer, since I'd worked in the construction field, that's the answer I gave them. I was interested in construction law, and that's where I got started, mostly representing design professionals in my early years, then later on started to branch out a little bit, work a little bit more with owners and occasionally a contractor here and there. You know, as I hear you talking, I think the broadcasting field may have missed out. I could see you being a good sports broadcaster. I can hear it in your voice. I think it would have worked out. 
My claim to fame as I announced the University of North Dakota Fighting Sioux, now Fighting Hawk, hockey games for two years, and they were won the national championship one year. So that was that must uh, have been a lot fun. of fun. And people also tell me it's an old joke, but I have the face for radio. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Not true. Can you tell us, Mark, give us some examples of the kinds of projects you've worked on? Well, sure. Uh, when I got started, the Hugh Ray Humphrey Metrodome had just been built in Minneapolis, and our firm was very active in the first roof collapse. You might remember there were many. So I got involved a little bit in that, but there were also several other aspects of that project. The bleachers had some big problems, the AstroTurf. There's just a lot of things to work on. And from there, most of our clients, as I mentioned, were design professionals, engineers. I did a lot of work. They had some experimental wastewater treatment plants that were in place that didn't work out well. We had a lot of work there, a lot of institutional work, colleges, schools. And then I got to almost every sports facility in the three-state area we had some involvement with one way or the other. I represented the architect for the amusement park in the Mall of America, which was quite fun. So a pretty wide variety of construction projects. You've also, Mark, made the ABA Forum on Construction Law an important part of your career and practice. Tell us about how you became so involved in the forum. My first meeting was in 1995, David, and I went there. In the first program, they had the general counsel for the AIA, general counsel for the AGC, and uh, general counsel for the large owner organization. And the discussion was amazing. And I was kind of hooked right from the start at the programs they put together. And so I joined a division, Division Three, which was the design division at the time, met some great people, and I was kind of hooked. And what I found was that I made great friends because the people were good. I learned a lot, which helped me in my legal practice. And the more I got engaged with the programs and with the forum, I found the more I got out of it. And you never go there with the idea of what's in this for me. But what you realize is after you've worked on the forum projects for years, you look back and you realize it has been such a benefit. I never would have realized it. But it's a great organization, probably the best educational programs I've ever attended have been forum programs. I know you and I have talked about that over the years. Thank you for all of your service to the forum. You talked about your legal background, the projects you've been involved in, but we're we're here today to talk about your work as a mediator and the concept of blind mediation. So let's start at the beginning. How did you get into serving as a mediator and what is your experience in that regard? Sure. It's interesting when you go to law school, no one ever goes to law school, at least that I'm aware of, that says, I want to study to be a mediator. And I had no desire to be one. I kind of lucked into it. A friend of mine had a conflict in the late 90s. He asked me if I'd mediate the case. I mediated it and just almost immediately fell in love with the process. I thought it really added a lot to the clients or to the parties that are participating. You got to deal with people in a quite different way than you would as a litigator. And I think that as I started to do it, I just felt my skill set and my personality kind of meshed with the mediation process. So I started to just spread the word and mention to my friends, hey, if you need someone to mediate a case, I'm available. And uh, it just kind of built from there. I think it's one of those things where it's hard to be a mediator and litigator, but ultimately, I think my litigation skills help my mediation and my mediation skills help my litigation practice. I know you do mediations now across the country and a variety of different contexts, but let's focus on this concept of blind and double-blind mediation approaches. Can you tell us a bit about the approach and why you find it useful? Sure. 
When I first started to mediate cases, David, all the numbers were on the table. And we did it kind of in a very regimented way. We'd have an opening session. We'd have opening arguments. We'd hear from all the parties. We'd break out. All the numbers were on the table. And we'd fight to see if we get to the finish line. Over the years, as we worked that process evolved, we started to realize that sometimes there are artificial barriers that that process created. And I'll just give you one example. Let's assume we've got a case that's a million-dollar case, and someone says, Healy, I'm in for 50% of the settlement value, so you got $500,000, and it's two parties, simple case. And I come back the other day, great news, we can settle the case. The claimant will take 800000 The other party will pay three hundred. I got your half a million. We're done. Well, wait a minute, Healy. I told you I was in for half. So you have $400,000. So as the owner or the claimant, whoever got more reasonable, the authority went down. And that didn't make sense to me. It seemed to me it should be the opposite. And so what we found was we had to find a way to get over kind of the positional hurdles. And one of the tools we started to look at was this approach of blind mediation. At least here in Minnesota, that's how it started to evolve. So you don't use it in every case, and you find it to be more appropriate in the multi-party larger cases. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's something that people have said to me, Mark, I hear you use the blind mediation process. And and I say, I use a lot of processes because it doesn't fit. It wouldn't make sense in a two-party case. It may not make sense in even a simple three- or four-party case. But in construction cases, if you just imagine you have the owner with claims against the architect, the general contractor, they've got consultants, subcontractors, there might be a surety thrown in, there might be mechanics liens, they've all got insurers. As those number of parties grow, the benefits of blind mediation, I think, multiply. And that's why they really are a good fit for construction cases. So you talked a bit about some of the variables that surround why you might use it. Let's get to the process itself. Tell us what a blind mediation looks like. All right. You'll hear people talk about blind or double blind. And what I'm going to talk about is the double blind mediation. And then at the end, I'll explain what blind is. But double blind mediation is where, let's use the case I talked about hypothetically, you have an owner, architect, contractor, a couple of subcontractors. The owner has a claim. It makes its demand. Let's say that demand is $2 million. I tell all of the other parties that opening demand. I get responses to that opening demand from the four or five defendants. Let's say I raise $400,000. I go back to the owner. I say, your opening demand was $2 million. I've raised $400,000. What do you want to do? And the owner might say, I'll drop to a million eight. In the traditional mediation, I go back and I tell the defendants, owners at a million eight, we raised $400,000 and you put in this. Joe put in that and disclose all the numbers. In the double blind approach, what I do is I take the owner's new demand of $1.8 million, the total amount I raised of $400,000, and the difference in that, the gap, is what I tell the parties. So in other words, we started out $2 million apart. I will go around to the parties and tell them we were $2 million apart, and now we are one point, and I'm going to do the math in my head, $4 million apart. And you can tell each party to put in money. If I'm a defendant and I put in $100,000, I'll tell them we start out $2 million apart. You put $100,000, now we're $1.4 million apart. That's how it starts. I've heard people describe parts of this as separating the people from the process. Do you see it that way? Do you see that as a benefit of doing it with this methodology? 
Well, I think it separates maybe the positions from the process. And by that, I think the people are still engaged. It's still critical that they feel like they have a voice in the negotiation. But what you take away is the people who negotiate by positions. And by that, I mean, you come back with a number to the plaintiff, but the plaintiff thinks unreasonably low, and they just say, I'm not going to move. That number is too low. Or a defendant who says, Mark, I'm in for exactly half as much as my co-defendant. And if you talk to that co-defendant, they might say, well, I'm in for half as much as they are. They don't agree. They don't offer anything. By taking the positions out of the process and getting people to focus more on what's their exposure and what would they want to get out of the case for, I think gives us a better chance of getting the case settled. Before we talk through some of the variables, things that you think about, things that litigants should think about, let's focus on it from each of the individual parties who might typically be involved in a larger construction dispute. So let's start with the claimant, the plaintiff, any given case who's seeking money. What do they hear from you in the process? Well, the first thing they hear is I explain the process to them because it is different. And then I try to explain to them some of what I perceive as the advantages of the process to the claimant. And the biggest one, I think, is they have more information than everyone else. They know the demand that they're making. They know the total offer. That's an advantage. The other advantage, and this, I think, goes across the board, but I'll start with the plaintiff. They don't have to worry that this is an exercise to get them to their lowest number today. And then if the case doesn't settle, their lowest number today becomes the starting point tomorrow. Because the numbers are on the table, people, attorneys, people who negotiate automatically hold back because of the fear of just that. So by negotiating the blind, we take that out of the equation. And I think that helps. And I think that the other benefit to the plaintiffs is that they probably have a better feeling about being willing to go to the very end and knowing they're not stuck. What about the defendants? What do you tell them? A little bit of the same thing. They don't have as much information as they claim it, obviously. But they, one, don't have to worry that this is a game to get them to their highest number. They have that confidentiality, which is, at least in my view, a pretty significant advantage that they've got. I think the other advantage that the defendants have is that they don't have to compete with each other. I mean, picture this situation, David. We've got a case that's a million-dollar case, and we settle it. And you're writing this letter to your client. The news, we settled the million-dollar case. We paid 800000 Joe paid 50000 Ed paid twenty five. Right. Those are hard letters to write. I'm exaggerating to the point. But when the numbers are on the table, a lot of times you don't want to write a letter, even if it's a dollar more than your co-defendant. By negotiating confidentially, defendants can evaluate the case honestly, and they don't have to worry about the fallout, whether it's an insurance company a client, a party of saying, we paid more than Joe. And a lot of times you might pay less than them. You don't know, but you don't have that competition going on because that competition exists across all boards. The other thing is you're not setting a precedent. And a lot of our cases, a lot of lawyers deal with each other and they're worried about setting precedent. You might remember back 10, 20 years ago, there was a ton of water intrusion cases, bad exterior envelopes, whether it was eaves or stucco or siding. And in those cases, precedent was really critical, and the ability to settle confidentially made a huge difference to a lot of defendants and helped us settle a lot of cases. I think when we come back from the break, let's talk about some of the other mechanics about 
how the blind, double-blind mediation process works, and then talk through some of the variables and best practices that you think are important for our listeners to hear. We'll be right back with more of the podcast. PMA Consultants is a leading provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. Our experts have a wealth of experience in identifying, analyzing, preparing, and presenting claims and disputes on construction and engineering projects. PMA is proud to be a longtime supporter of the ABA Construction Law Forum and its members. Connect with our construction claims experts on our website, pmaconsultants.com. Welcome back to the podcast. So Mark, when we broke, we were talking about some of the mechanics of the double blind mediation process. I thought to have us dive a little bit deeper into that for a couple minutes. So let me ask you a few questions about the process. So if I'm a general contractor where the owner is the claimant and I wanna know the plaintiff's demand, how do I find that out? I'll tell you their opening demand. I'm not going to tell okay. you under this process their demand because it's confidential. All right. So what if I am what that same party, I want to know what the architect in particular is offering? Same answer. I can't tell you. What were those spy movies? You know, I'd tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Uh, yeah, right. If we're truly sticking to a confidential double-blind approach, I can't tell you where they are. Now, you can try to reverse engineer where people might be by working with the information that is available, which is how much the gap closed the last go around, how much money you put in or didn't put in. But that's the best we can do. That does happen sometimes. If I don't know how much each other party is offering to contribute or the changing demand from the claimant, how am I or my client supposed to make an intelligent evaluation about how much to contribute? Well, there's two things to keep in mind. The first is, if you were negotiating separately, for example, in Minnesota, we have Piringer settlements, which are separate settlements between, in your case, the owner and the general contractor. You would know what the issues are. You would know what the exposure is for your client. You would know the risk, the costs of proceeding. You would factor all that in and you would have a ballpark range of what you think is a fair settlement for that case. Even though all of the other numbers are confidential, if you know where you can land the case principally, you know, what makes sense for you, and you know where the gap is going, you can see if you can land the case within the range you've talked about. So the first thing that I would tell you is you can evaluate it based on all of the facts that are out there, just as you would in a separate negotiation. But the other information that you'll receive is you'll see the gap closing. As people get closer, you'll know if you're close to the end of the day, if you're still a long way away. And those are the things that allow you to negotiate based on what I would call the merits of the claims or the merits of the defenses versus the positions of the parties. In your years of experience across the country, is this approach typical? I'd say no. It's typical here in the Midwest, at least the cases I've mediated in North Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin. But as I've gotten a bit further out and particularly towards the coast, it takes a lot of explaining 
particularly to insurance companies who are, in many of these cases, funding the settlements. When they ask those questions, you ask me, you know, what's the demand? I can't tell you. What? <laughs> I mean, the, the insurers, a lot of times their initial reaction is, that's crazy. And I got to know. And if you don't tell me, we're not offering any more money. But a lot of times when I share with them the idea that it is a confidential process, but you have benefits of that process. And when I share with them, if you want to know where everyone else is, you better be prepared to tell where you are. And a lot of times parties start to realize, oh, I don't know if I want to share where I am right now. And they start to see the at least benefits of the process in a particular case. If not, it's their process, not mine. I have seen insurers push back on the double-blind mediation process, but of course I've seen it work in practice and know that it can work and do great things. So if you get this pushback from parties, why do you continue using this approach? Well, I would say this. I look at mediation as a really hard process. And when you think about it, I'll start first from my perspective. As a media, I'm going into rooms asking people to pay more money than they want to, take less money than they want to, and it could drive you crazy. But when you think about the bigger picture, everyone wants to settle cases. That's why they're in mediation, at least the vast majority of people are. And if that goal can be accomplished through alternate sources, I think you look at as a media, what's the best path for the parties to get there? And sometimes, even if it's a path they're not familiar with, you at least want to offer it. And from my perspective, if I start in the blind negotiations and it's a dead end or people aren't comfortable with it, you can always convert and put the numbers on the table. It's much harder to start with the numbers on the table, get 80% into the mediation and say, you know what, let's go blind or let's, you can't really unring the bell. So that's why I tend to try it. I try to tailor the mediation with the approach that best fits the circumstances. So it's not all the time. But there are cases where it makes sense, and then I'm going to try and use it. You think there are some cases where this is really the only way to resolve them? I would say yes. And what I would say is this. Probably, if you're looking at mediation as a way to solve cases earlier and more efficiently, then I know the blind method is, in a lot of cases, the only way that happens. And you see that as a mediator because of the hard feelings between parties that can be diffused with this process. You see it with the avoidance of that thing I told you about earlier, which is people holding back authority because they don't want to set a precedent. They don't want to set a floor. The blind takes that out of the equation. And then on so many construction cases, there's money flowing two directions, whether it's unpaid subcontractors, whether it's general contractors, or surety involved. With the blind process, you have, a, I'd say, a greater opportunity to get money going both directions without running into the procedural roadblocks. I definitely think the blind method settles a lot of cases that would not be settled, or at least not settled as soon when all the numbers are on the table. In reading in some of the materials that you sent me and that we discussed, I read about position-based negotiations and about using negotiation theory as part of the double-blind process. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. When I was a lawyer, representing parties and mediations. One of the things that used to drive me crazy were the mediators who would go back and forth and they'd say, well, the demand's a million dollars. What do you want to do, Mark? And say, well, okay, we'll offer $100,000. Thanks, Mark. Other side, they offered $100,000. What do you want to do? Well, I want a million, but I'll go to 900. Okay, Mark, they're at 900. And it was just, you know, carrying numbers back and forth. And from my perspective, a trained shimp can carry numbers back and forth. 
you need to get involved in discovering people's interests, what moves them, where their common interests, where their diverse interests. And the reason the blind process, I think, is successful is to a large degree, it takes out the positional negotiations that occur. The arguments that I'm not going to move because they're too low, they're way too high, I'm not going to move. And it forces you to talk about the merits of the case, the merits of the defenses, what happens if you don't settle, what are the options to settle. And I think it really forces people into that sort of interest-based negotiation, which in the long run, I think is better for everybody. Right. The classic example, right, is where you have parties that have been at each other for a year and a half, two years now, and one party starts off with an excessive demand, and then the other party comes up by the exact same amount from their lower offer. This process helps to solve some of the emotion and positional issues that come with that classic negotiation, right? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It really allows us to insulate people from those positions. For example, if you got five defendants and one starts out saying, I'm offering nothing or I'll never offer a penny, when all the numbers are open, that might chill the room for everybody else. In the blind, you'll have some people who offer you more money to start with. You can cover that initial tough opening until later on when you can get that party to participate. So in my view, really provides a buffer and a uh, a bit of an insulation, if you will, from the hand grenade being thrown into mediation that blows up the whole negotiation. You can but hide that. I think that buffer is also important. And I, I say this maybe in my role, I often play as insurance coverage counsel, where you have not just the parties, but the insurers involved too. And the ability for you to, maybe it's hiding in some way the where the contributions come from and come out of, I think it's helpful to the process of not having everyone involved in the process, including the insurers, have this you know, emotional reaction to how the money comes in and out. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And having said that, we still get a lot of emotion, obviously, even in the blind. But I think it really does give the mediator at least a better opportunity to get around those hand grenades that are thrown in, whether it's a demand that is just sky high or whether it's you know, a really recalcitrant party. Or sometimes there's disputes intramurally, if that's a word, between sure. a number of insurers yep. or a party, and you sometimes have to work those out. And doing this in the blind helps. It also gives you the ability not to answer what might be unfair questions. So plaintiffs a lot of times will say, well, how much is their insurer putting in and how much is the party putting in? I can't tell you. That maybe shouldn't matter because the money will be the same, but where emotions are involved, a lot of people want a particular party to put in money, for example, or other people think exactly. that coverage position is absurd unless the insurer is putting in this much or wasting our time. Those kinds of procedural hurdles can be avoided if we work in the blind, which is a benefit to mediators. What about for the lawyers involved? What do you see as advantages for lawyers involved in this double blind process? Well, I think that one of the advantages, and I mentioned a couple of these earlier, but First, the idea that you can truly evaluate a case on the merits versus comparing to what other people are doing or not doing. Second, you aren't setting precedent. So if you have 10 cases with a lawyer, you're not necessarily locked into a pattern practice. And I think it also allows lawyers to speak much more freely with the mediator, which really helps increase the chances of cases getting settled. So if their numbers are confidential, they can give the mediator a better idea of the range they'll be in. 
of the flexibility they may or may not have, and then work with the mediator to decide how do you best allocate, you know, what's the timing that works best. Because sometimes the general contractor, for example, in a hypothetical case, might have to really take the lead to get the parties close enough to see light at the end of the tunnel before the subcontractors start to play ball. You can advise a general contractor in that regard. Sometimes it's the opposite. The general wants to get all the subs to max out what they might do, and then it can make a decision. But it gives you that flexibility as a lawyer and as a mediator, and that's a benefit. We've talked how about you? Do you see benefits yeah, of the process? I, or not? I definitely do. I mean, I, I see the benefit of removing some of the emotion, as you described it, with which party is contributing how much money to the pot. That could, because that sometimes upsets the entire apple cart and people say, well, if they're not going to, they're just as responsible as us. There's no, you know, that, that happens all the time. And I, I also think it makes it easier not to have the traditional incremental approach that you and I have discussed, where it's exchanging one offer and then one counter offer back that is the same amount higher or lower than the last one. And that I think removing those two things from the process can be helpful. Do you see any disadvantages to using a double-blind method? Yeah, there are a couple. I think that the first one is the fact that people just aren't familiar with the process, and there's a lot of distrust in the process when people first get engaged. And in particular, you just hear, I have to know what the final settlement is, or I have to know where the other party is, or I can't evaluate. And so you have to really fight through that sometimes. I think that one other disadvantage I see is that the process typically starts a little bit slower. You know, when all the numbers are on the table, you can sometimes tell by the first couple of numbers what the atmosphere is, where the parties, you know, will be negotiating. In the blind, sometimes people hide a little bit, and it may take a couple of rounds before you really start to get people engaged. So it starts slow, and the challenge as a mediator is to get through those numbers that no one thinks about and into numbers that really are realistic to try and settle the case. And then I think the other thing is just the constant I called it the assault on confidentiality, but lawyers want as much information as they can get, and they're constantly trying to find out, hey, how much are they paying? How much are they taking? That sort of thing. So you have to be very careful about your discussions so you don't inadvertently give something away. How about this, Mark, as we come closer to a close of our podcast session here? What tips would you offer to lawyers, construction lawyers in our audience who are going to do their first double-blind mediation or who have done it several times? What things do you think they should be thinking about to best advocate for their clients in this process? Well, I think there's a couple things. One is from the client perspective, you're working with clients, particularly those that aren't familiar with the process. Take time to explain the process to them in advance. And if there are concerns about the process in advance, let the mediator know. There's an opportunity then to work it out as opposed to if you're in the heart of the mediation and you have to take time to explain the process or someone backs out of the process and says, no, I, all the numbers got to be on the table. If that's the case, if one party says, I got to see all the numbers, then the mediator has to go around and get permission from all the other parties to disclose the numbers. So the process changes. So talk to your clients early on to make sure they're comfortable with the process and let you know any questions be answered. That, I think, is a big one. The second is if there are other parties or other lawyers that you know are not familiar with the process, share that. I know a couple of cases that I've been asked to do have been by parties that have done blind mediations 
and introduced it to people that haven't done blind mediations. And we've had sessions in advance of the mediation just to talk about the process. And so if you know there are other parties that haven't been through it, sometimes it, it helps to at least talk to them about the process. And then the third thing, and, and maybe this is the most important, is understand that evaluation of the merits and principle of negotiation is going to be key. And the more prepared the parties are to accept that, I think the better opportunities they have to get a good deal for their clients, whether it's part of a global settlement or separate negotiations. Well, this is an important topic. And Mark, you've been an excellent guest. So thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Glad to be here, David. Thanks for having me and really enjoyed talking to you. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, David Suchar, at david.suchar at maslin.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.